If you got your Bible, you can go ahead and open them up to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We're going to be continuing our our march through Luke. We're talking about an idea and a concept that we've talked about before. We've actually talked about at a certain level before, even in the Gospel of Luke, and that is this thing that we're going to call the master principle. So starting there in chapter 22, verse 24, it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater... One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am, I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we come to you, um, God, thanking you for your word, thanking you for um, this objective source that we can come to, to learn about who you are, about who your son is, God, about the predicament that we find ourselves in as, as sinners, but God, the promise that you have made us uh, through your son, Jesus Christ of salvation, God, of how we are to live in light of that salvation uh, with that calling upon our lives. God, we thank you for your word. Um, we could get up here and and talk about the wisdom of men and and the platitudes of our world um, and and waste our time, uh, but God, we have uh, Your Word, um, and God, we we can't even calculate the blessing that that is that You have revealed Yourself, that You have spoken to us, that You continue to speak to us um, through it. So we thank You, God. We thank You for. Uh, God, this time, we thank you for church. We thank you for uh, the reality that uh, this day, all over our county and our state and our country and across the world, um, God, your gospel was proclaimed. Uh, God, that is, as um, faithful men opened your word and expounded upon uh, your word, God, that uh, your calling, your command was taught, your gospel was proclaimed And God, we pray that you would work through the proclamation of your word, that the spirit would go before us, tilling up soil, um, taking hard hearts and making them supple, preparing them to receive the seed of the gospel. God, we we pray that you would do the same for those of us who have already uh, believed and trusted in Christ. And yet, um, because of our... uh, our laziness because of our complacency, God, we have drifted into a place where our hearts um, are seared to a certain extent, where they are closed off in certain areas to your word. Um, Father, we pray that you would in this time, as you have done all over the world um, this day, that you would would uh, work up that, that hard soil um, and prepare it for your word. God, we want to encounter you through your word this evening. Uh, we want our lives to be affected and changed because we have have been here today. And so we ask that you would do that. Please help us um, work in us through the power of your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so we come to a passage, and if it kind of is a quick refresher real quick of where we're at in the story. So we are at the Lord's, uh, the Last Supper, okay? Um, we, this is, this, this is the night that Jesus is betrayed. Um, he will go to the cross the next day. Um, he will be in the tomb the next day, and he will be risen on the third day. And so we, we come to this place where we have crossed over between these two stories. And obviously, um, they're connected, even though we have broken them up into two pieces. And so we're going to kind of look at that. Because in verse 24, so it says this line, And a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. There's something just sort of funny about that comment anyway, okay? But it probably comes out of something, and and, and sp- something specific. We, we notice a couple of connections with other places in Scripture. For one, it's interesting to note that something like this conversation arises in different forms multiple times throughout the Gospels. So um, three times at least in Matthew's Gospel, two times in Mark's Gospel, twice in in, in the Gospel of Luke. Back in chapter 9, we already saw a place where this kind of interchange takes place. And it's also interesting to note that oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, the context of those comments being made is right after Jesus says something about his impending betrayal and death. Okay? That's just sort of a weird thing. Right. Jesus comes to the disciples and says, guys, I am going to be betrayed. I'm going to be turned over to authorities. and I'm going to be killed. And then something about that conversation makes them start going, which of us is the greatest? Right. Which of us is his closest follower? Okay, And and probably we can imagine different scenarios in which there would be a natural way. That that might come up if Jesus were to say, because we see something like it when Peter says, when Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed and, and killed. And Jesus says, I'll be with you till the end. I mean, Peter says, I'll be with you till the end. Right. You can imagine how each of the disciples might say, well, yeah, yeah, Peter, you say, but I would really be the one who would be with him to the end. The rest of you guys are not as committed as I am. And so you can imagine how these conversations might spark up and the context around them um, and, and how that connects. Right. And so, again, That's what happens in this passage. It's certainly connected to the story that we just finished last week. Because remember how it ended in verse 21 through 23. It said, Jesus said, behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the son of man goes as it was has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then verse 23, they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So we, of course, recognize that that passage from last week is ultimately talking about Judas. Judas is the one whose hand is with him um, at the table and who is going to betray them. But here's the deal. Notice Jesus's words. He says, the person who is going to betray me, his hand Uh, The hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. It's true of Judas, but technically it's true of all the disciples. And the reality is, is that that is exactly what will happen. All of the disciples will betray Christ by the next evening. All the disciples will run away in the encounter with the authorities in the Garden of Gethsemane. All of them would abandon him. And so what we again notice is that verse 23 and 24 are connected, even though we have split them up in terms of weeks of, of preaching. 
Um, they are certainly connected. So I'll just read them together. Verse 23 says, and they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this, do this meaning betray him. And a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And so let's pause to acknowledge something as we have said before, and we will say again, probably, Luke has already talked about this concept. He's already talked, had a story like this. It's very similar to what happens in chapter 9. In chapter 9, verse 48, the, the, the saying is said, for he who is the least among you all is the one who is the greatest. That's the same kind of concept that we're dealing with in this passage. So again, the question might be, well, why are we doing this again? Why are we saying these things again? Well, there's a couple of reasons why. First is because it happened. Okay. The first reason why we're repeating this story is because we believe it actually happened. See, sometimes what happens when, when people start talking about the way the Bible came together, somebody might read these stories and they would say, well, you know, he talks about something like this in chapter nine, and then he talks about it again here. That must be a single tradition that got mixed up and, and he just sort of added these things in and, and, and we're piecemealing stuff. And the answer is that's not what we believe happened. Okay, we believe that this topic came up again because it actually came up again in the course of events. This was a real conversation that was really had at the Last Supper by the disciples. Okay, so that's part of the reason why we're talking about this subject again, even though we talked about it chapter nine. But a second reason is, is we also recognize that not every single event and every single encounter that actually happened in the life of Jesus and his disciples is recorded in Scripture. So that means Luke made the decision to include things and exclude things, right? There were events that he had probably heard about that had happened, teachings, sayings, whatever, and Luke decided that he was going to leave some things out and put some things in. Now, again, obviously, we believe that those things were included or excluded through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that what ended up in Luke's gospel is what God intended for there to be in Luke's gospel. But it tells us something. The fact that this passage was included again, that we're returning to a point we've already been to, is that there is an emphasis here. There's a problem amongst the disciples. And it is this problem of assessing among themselves who's the greatest, who is most faithfully following God, right? It's, it's a problem that comes up in our own lives in different ways, okay? We end up judging our own faithfulness off of other people. We sort of think to ourselves, well, I'm certainly doing a better job at this whole Jesus thing than that guy is over there, but maybe not as good as this person. And they're sort of my role model. I like following, you know, I, I want to aspire to that. But we try to, we try to assemble like a pecking order, right, in our own heads, just like the disciples are doing. And Jesus has something to say about greatness, Greatness in the faith, greatness in following Christ. What does that look like? And he, and he gives us this thing that certain commentators have called the master principle. Now that's just a name that somebody gave to it. Sort of like we got the great commission and we got the great commandment. And somebody said, well, we have this thing that is the master principle. And this is the idea is that Jesus flips what greatness looks like. <laughs> That's the concept in this passage. He flips the idea of what true leadership looks like. Christ reveals and exemplifies the truth, a truth that is worth repeating, a truth that we saw in chapter 9, that we see again here, that we see in Matthew three times and Mark two times. 
because it goes against the wisdom of the world. This is not the way the world usually thinks about these things. And so it's emphasized again. So what does it say? What is that principle? What does greatness really look like? The disciples want to know who's the greatest. Jesus tells them what greatness really looks like. Verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. So in the world, the way of the world is the way of power. Dominance. Clawing and scraping your way to the top. And once you're there, you get to exercise the privileges of being at the top. And that can look any number of ways in any number of fields. Jesus says this is the way the world works. This is the way the Gentiles, and by Gentiles, there's a technical meaning of Gentiles, right? Anybody who's not Jewish, but but in the way he's using it, he's meaning it saying the ungodly outsiders, right? This is the way they live their lives. Their lives are about power about dominance. Man, all you got to do is is look into the way the Roman Empire worked and like you get an incredible picture of these concepts, right? The way power, the way influence, the way dominance works at all levels of society from government down to the family. Jesus says, this is the way the world works. They exercise lordship over each other. And people call them benefactors. Now that's sort of a weird turn of phrase, okay? Because I don't know about you, and maybe I'm wrong, I usually think about benefactors being somewhere between neutral to positive, a term, right? Like that's a that's a good thing. Being a benefactor would, would, is not a negative. But the interesting thing is, is it's, it's being used more in a negative way here. So uh, the point is, is that there are these persons in authority in positions where you need them way more than they need you. You serve at their leisure. You eat from their hand, metaphorically. And if he decides to withdraw that hand, then you're done, right? You are cut off. There were all kinds of relationships like that within, certainly within the Roman Empire, but even within Judaism, right? Because it's in every society. This system of hierarchy, the system of power, the system of dominance, that word benefactor, in the Greek, is used of characters like great heroes, kings, even sometimes of gods. But it's also used of them even if they're despotic in terms of their uh, the way they, they, they live out their lives. So you could have a king who is a despotic ruler, and yet he would still be called a benefactor. Why? Because, again, that idea that, man, he has people in subservience under him, and those people rely on him, and if he decides to cut those people off, then they're in trouble. Okay? That's the picture. He says this is how the world works. All right? We, in in our modern era, we have an idea of this that comes to us through the, the philosopher Nietzsche. And Nietzsche, t- Nietzsche talks about, we've said before, the ubermensch. Right. The Superman, that there are these men out there um, and potentially women who, through force of will and character and exertion of power, dominate other people and take their place in the world and in society so that they can live as they see fit. And the weak are subservient to those people. Right. And that's the way the world should be, according to Nietzsche. Right. The Superman. He has this will of power to dominate. That's the way the world works, okay? But Jesus says, 
The kingdom of God is upside down in those things. The kingdom of God doesn't work that way. It doesn't look like that. That's not what greatness looks like. Napoleon and Alexander the Great and and Caesar and Nebuchadnezzar and who other of the great leaders of history that you want to look at, all of those men would have fallen into that ubermensch character, right? Some more despotic than others. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is upside down. It doesn't work like that. Verse 26, he says, but it must not be so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. All right. So so some of y'all are familiar with the, the a guy named Jordan Peterson. He's kind of a social commentator. He's a psychologist by trade um, and he's sort of a talking head and, and does a lot of things. Right. Um, I like Jordan Peterson. I think he has a lot of interesting things to say. He's not a believer. Okay, he's not a believer. And so we should take everything he says with a big grain of salt. Okay, Um, but sometimes he has some interesting insights. And I I was listening to something the other day and he shared one. And I I noticed something because it was something that I heard in churches before as well. And so he says this, he makes this insight uh, where where he says he's talking about meekness. So he says a lot of times in our culture, we associate meekness with weakness, right? We think that those people who are meek are people who are, that is equivalent of saying that they are weak. And, and, and Peterson says, no, that's not the case. That's not right. Meekness is strength under control, okay? Um, meekness is the idea of a sword that is sheathed. Right. You know how to use that sword. You could if you wanted to, but you don't. You keep it under control and you keep it um, uh, sheathed. Right. And so he says he says this is what true meekness is. It is power, maybe even this dominance. Right. This will to power. But you have taken that under control and don't live it out. Jesus some would say would go. Jesus was meek, but he certainly wasn't weak. Right. We know that Jesus is at a level in his incarnation a little differently, but, but he's all powerful, right? There's no lack of power in Jesus. And yet he is also meek, but here's something interesting. I've heard that from the pulpit too, right? I've even said it before. Okay. I remember teaching on it before and saying, yeah, yeah, weakness you know, meekness is about power under control. And here's the deal. I don't think that's wrong. Okay. But what, what my, the point I want to make is it's not what is it at the center here. The point that Jesus is making is that leadership and greatness in the kingdom isn't about power at all. It's about servanthood. Okay, that's the point. And so that's one of those kind of background questions. The Gentiles say greatness comes from leadership expressed in raw expressions of of power, right? The emperor, the great general. Hercules or something from a, from a, a myth or a story, right? That's what the Gentiles say greatness looks like. Then Peterson or Christians even might come along and say, no, no, no. Greatness and leadership is about meekness. It's about taking that power and putting it under control for good use. And so I think what Jesus' point is, and I'm not saying I disagree with that, but I think Jesus' point is saying, no, no, no it's not about power at all. Greatness is not about power. It's about servanthood. So there will be some of you who have great power and some of you with no power. 
And yet that doesn't change your ability to be great in the kingdom of God at all because it doesn't have anything to do with your power. It has to do with your servanthood. So if you were a servant, you were great in the kingdom of God, whether you had power and didn't use it or used it and didn't have it or, or any combination of the, the things. It doesn't have to do with power at all. And notice there's a temptation in both directions because the strong have a temptation to dominance. That's what the strong always do, to force their way on other people. And the weak have a temptation to abdication, right? To say, it's not my problem. Like, I shouldn't have to deal with these things because I don't have the power to do these things. And Jesus says, wrong to both. The truly great put others before themselves, regardless of their situation in life, regardless of whether they're the emperor or the slave, regardless of whether they're the person at the top or the person at the bottom. And then Jesus sets the example of his own life. Verse 27. So he starts off by making a statement that is factual, And we shouldn't second guess. Verse 27, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Now, you might be thinking, this is a trick question after what he just said, right? It's a trick question. Who's greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who who, who serves? Okay? But Jesus answers his own question. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Of course The greater person, the person being shown more honor is the person who is being served. Okay. That's not, that's not incorrect. But then what's the next thing he says? But he says, but notice guys, I am among you as one who serves. Right. So what's the point? The point is again to say, Jesus goes, I'm not saying that it is not more honorable to, to be the person at the table who is being served, but he's saying, but what I have done as an example to you, is I have not sought that position, even though I am infinitely worthy of it. Instead, I have sought to serve you. Instead of me coming, which again, certainly we would all agree, if anybody is worthy of honor, if anybody is worthy of being served, it is Jesus. No one is more worthy than Jesus is. And yet Jesus says, but I have not done, I've not taken advantage of that position. I've Come as a servant, because that's what true greatness looks like. It's not about power. It's not about weakness. It's about giving your life in service to others. Right? We have a problem with this in our culture, because we talk a whole lot about rights. Man, we are obsessed with rights in our culture, about what I deserve and what I should get, how I should be treated. But the reality is this. To act as a servant is always costly, okay? It always costs you something. When you are a servant, you're going to get something on you, okay? That's just the way it is. That's a hard thing to deal with. Mothers and fathers, you particularly know this. Mothers, you probably particularly know this more than fathers, right? Because you serve your children, and you know Man, that is going to be a costly thing. It is going to cost you energy and time and, and all kinds of stuff, right? But you do that because you love them. Servanthood is costly, right? Um, probably many of you are fans or at least familiar with Downton Abbey. 
the TV show Downton Abbey, right? I love Downton Abbey. It's a fun show, okay? Um, and, and if you don't know anything about it, it's about this English manor house, right? And there are the upstairs people and the downstairs people. There's the upstairs people who are the aristocrats who own the, the, the estate and have their, you know, their family members who come and, and dine in tuxes and, and have all go hunting all day and just like live a life of leisure. But then below in the, the lower decks of the house, right? You have this army of servants, right? And all the time. They are serving and, and doing stuff, right? Um, they are up before the sun comes up, doing all kinds of things, preparing breakfast, uh, starting the fires, uh, ironing clothes, and a million other jobs. And what are the aristocrats doing? Well, the aristocrats are sleeping in because they stayed up too late playing cards and drank too much or whatever, right? And so that's what happens every day. And so I watch the show sometimes and I go, you know what? What if that maid wants to sleep in today? What if she wants to sleep in? The, the heiress got to sleep in. She slept till noon today. What if that maid just says, you know what, I'm not feeling it today. I want to sleep in. And the answer is what? She can't. You know why? Because servanthood is costly. It is every single time. And yet Jesus says, this is what I'm calling you to. This is what greatness looks like. Not going, man, I finally made it to where I don't have to be a servant to people because I get to do whatever I want to and sleep in and be in the upstairs group. No, it's to say greatness looks like always recognizing that I'm going to give my life to be a downstairs uh, part of that group. Okay. Part of the servants. Servanthood is costly. It costs Jesus. It costs Jesus his life. It will cost us our lives in various ways. But here's the thing also notice Jesus next words. Because he doesn't stop there, and it makes sense that he wouldn't stop there, because he just affirmed that the greater position of being served at the table or being a servant, the greater position is to be served, right? To be the one who gets to recline at table. That's the greater position. And then what does he say in verse 28? Or the or the, the more desirable position, right? It's not the one that leads to greatness, but it is the one that obviously everybody would sort of like to go, yeah, man, that would be nice to like to lay at the table and like be served. So what does he say in verse 28? He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Disciples, you have done what I'm saying. You have been servants. All right. You have stuck with me through all of the garbage of the last three years. You have stayed with me when the times were tough. You stayed with me when our friend and co-laborer, John the Baptist, got his head cut off. For this stuff. You stayed with me when we went to my hometown and they were trying to throw rocks at me as we walked out of the place. You stayed with me as the Pharisees time after time have sought our destruction. Demons and early mornings and demanding crowds always on the move, no place to lay our heads. Disciples, you have acted as servants with me, right? You have been there with me the whole time. And you have acted as servants. You stayed through all the trials. And again, there's sort of a tragic irony in this passage because we know what's about to happen. We know that by the end of the night, they won't stay. They may have stayed up to this point, but before the sun comes up, they are going to walk away from Jesus. They are going to get scared and say the cost is too much. I'm, I'm going to run for my life. They're all going to bail. 
And yet Jesus still acknowledges them and says, you have stayed with me. You've been faithful through these things. And obviously we know from the rest of the story that they will be faithful again. They will return to Christ. They will repent and continue to follow him. But Jesus says, there's a reward for that servanthood. Verse 29, he says, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may, and then notice this, notice the parallelism, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? That parallelism is heavy there. Jesus has just used this example of the banquet table and said, what's the, what's the better deal, to be the servant or to be the one at the table? And everybody's like, well, obviously the one at the table. And he's like, yeah, but if you notice, I don't do that. I have not come to be served, but I've come to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And then yet not two passages later, he says, guys, one day you're all going to sit at the table with me. You are going to be those who sit at the table. You're going to get to enjoy the fellowship and the blessing as those who are honored for your faithfulness around the table. In fact, you are going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a, that's a whole nother man. We go down a rabbit trail about all of what that means. Jesus has a kingdom waiting on him. And so do we. It's exactly what we talked about last week. They will be seated at the table in the kingdom. Jesus says, my kingdom, my table, but it will be your kingdom there too. It will be your kingdom at that point because you will be adopted into that, inheriting that kingdom and being heirs with Christ in all things. And they'll be eating and drinking at that table as guests of honor and sitting on thrones. And so again, this master principle, right? The master principle that's being pointed to in all these connecting passages, and we'll close with this idea, the exalted in this life will be humbled and the humbled will be exalted. The servant will be great and those who are great will be humbled. We remember the story of the rich man who it says he received his blessings in this life and yet it was Lazarus, the poor man, who rests in paradise. The first in this life will be last. And the last will be first in the kingdom. That's the master principle. That's what Jesus reminds us of. That's what I think he probably is reminding disciples of because in moments from now, he is going to be arrested. They are going to be functionally on the run for their lives. They're going to be hiding out for days before Jesus is resurrected or for a day and a night before Jesus is resurrected, um, thinking uh, it's all over, right? This has cost us everything and there has been no benefit. And yet Jesus says, servanthood is what I call you to and there is a reward coming and you can count on that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking that Jesus would make us into servants. It is easy to not be. It is easy to fall into the stream and the current of the world that says I should enjoy the fruits of the rank that I have attained, right? It's easy to do that. And we all do it in some way, shape, or or form. 
And yet Jesus is always calling us back saying, no, live your life as a servant. Don't seek after those things. Acknowledge the cost, embrace the sacrifice, and serve. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you again for this day. God, we thank you for your word. Father, we um, ask for you to work in our lives, God. It is the, it is the warp and woof of our culture to, to steer us into wrong understandings of what true greatness looks like, of what true leadership looks like. God, all we have to do is turn on the TV and look at our politicians and look at our sports heroes and look at our movie stars. Um, look at captains of industry, um, look at influencers and, and, and movers and shakers, um, and those kind of people. God, we know what the world says and the way it portrays these things. We know the draw and the pull that those things have on us. And yet we ask that by the power of your word and your spirit, God, that you would work in us to make us servants, that we would serve our families, that we would serve our church members, that we would serve our community, that we would serve um, the sojourners and the orphans and the widows, God, that we would serve the strangers, God, that we would even serve our enemies. God, that we would live our lives in such a way where their needs are placed before our own. God, that is a daunting task. And we can imagine all kinds of scenarios immediately in which those things can be um, there can be a, abuses there, that things can get out of line, God, that, that, that injustice can happen. And so we are not uh, condoning or, or uh, encouraging certainly any of those things. And yet um, we know how easy it is for our hearts to flee from these things. So help us, God. Help us to um, live as ser- servants. Help us to live as Jesus Christ has taught us. Uh, God, when we fail, um, through the power of your saving grace and gospel, God, lift us back up um, and help us to um, to find that servanthood again. Uh, we love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
see you. Hope you have a great week. Um, I feel like there's something I'm forgetting to, is there something, there's another announcement I'm supposed to make? I don't know what it is. Uh, it's gone. Um, I'll remember it probably halfway through the week until you next week. So um, again, yeah, no, that wasn't it. Uh, yeah. Make sure if you're taking your kids over, uh, you're bringing them out here. You're, when you go to get your kids, Parking lot door for older kids, um, main door for the younger kids. Other than that, that's not it, but whatever it was, um, uh, we'll find out. So uh, remember a little card for the men's conference if you're interested. You've got to register online, but you can let me know that you might be um, coming with us, and so that would be great. Uh, hope you have a great week. Here's a benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week.